0: Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast following recent webinar series which looked at medication updates and case studies of patients on SGLT2 and DPP4 inhibitors. My name is Jan and I'll be your host today. The recording of the medication management webinar series is available on the ADA Learning Management System. This series gives an excellent and practical overview of SGLT2 and DPP4 inhibitors, their benefits and disadvantages, and some of the recommendations for use. I would like to introduce Peter Tauschman, who was one of the presenters on that webinar. Peter is a nurse practitioner and credential diabetes educator. For over 20 years, you're catching up to me, Peter. And, established, <laughs> and, and she established Brisbane Diabetes Education Services in 2003, working with endocrinologists, obstetricians, general practitioners, practice nurses, and those with diabetes and the people who care for them. Professionally, Peter has contributed to local and national projects designed to improve the care of people with diabetes, including the ADEA subcutaneous injection technique guidelines. Peter is also a Fellow of ADEA, the current Chair of the ADEA Clinical Practice Review Committee and Queensland State Networking Lead for the Private Practice Special Interest Group. So hello, Peter, and how are you today? Hi, Jan. I'm well. And thank you for asking me to speak with you today. A pleasure. But I guess what we're going to actually be doing today is covering the questions that came up from listeners during the live webinar. And there was a bit of interest around the increased risk of genitourinary issues with SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, So firstly, what are these commonly reported? Are these commonly reported in your patient on SGLT2s? And are there certain patients you would not put on SGLT2s because of that? Um, Thanks, Jan. It's
1: one of the areas of concern for people starting the STLG2 agents. The evidence tells us that women are at higher risk of genitourinary infections than men, and that men who are circumcised have a slightly uh, lower risk than men who are not. So when choosing the right patient for an SGLT2, I always check the medical history of the patient and consider their perineal hygiene as as an important point. I, I want to speak to the patients about their hygiene, make sure that they understand the importance of being clean around the perineum and for men making sure they understand that they clean around their foreskin and make sure that I follow up with all of these things once they've started their SGLT2 However, my clinical experience is that the majority of people aren't experiencing side effects. Those who do have quite pronounced symptoms and, they, and particularly present with thrush. Um, I haven't seen any men with balanitis so far, although I am aware of uh, my
0: colleagues having treated some, uh, some few men with balanitis. Thanks for that, Peter. I have another question related to urinary complications. Uh, a participant mm. asked, how often do UTIs become Eurosepsis, and also should we be concerned about gangrene of the vulva? Yeah, look, I haven't experienced this, Jan. Uh, so I've checked
1: some recent literature just to check my own knowledge, really. And it appears that reports of Eurosepsis and gangrene of the vulva are post-marketing reports. I wasn't able to find any particular statistics. On these side effects and there appear to be no regulatory concerns raised at this time. So I guess the take-home message is just follow up with patients once they're using
0: these medications. That's good news. Are there any tests you recommend before starting someone on an SGLT2 or dpp 4 inhibitor and what labs and trends do you review at follow-up? Yeah I think these
1: things are really helpful to identify the right patient for an SGLT2 and, and based on that potential for known side effects. Uh, the efficacy of the SGLT2 and DPP4 agents does rely on renal function. So we need to see that the EGFR is greater than 45 mil per minute for empagliflozin and also for ertugliflozin, which is coming onto the PBS on the 1st of December. For dapagliflozin, we want to see a GFR of greater than 60 mL a minute. With our DPP-4 agents, they all have different renal thresholds, with the exception of linagliptin, which is not renally excreted and can be used even in end-stage renal disease. Uh, A lot of the SGLT2s haven't been studied in ESRD, so it's really important to follow up for changes in renal function. We also need to consider the risk of volume depletion in the SGLT2s, particularly for those taking a loop diuretic. So regular blood pressure checks and checking electrolytes is very important. But these are things we routinely check in diabetes anyway.
0: That's true. I guess my other question is, how much can you lower HbA1c with a combination of gliptin and SGLT2s? So the studies tell us that for each additional oral agent added to metformin, we can expect around about
1: 0.5% lowering in HbA1c. But there are other benefits I think we need to consider aside from HbA1c lowering and cardiovascular and renal benefit and reduction in the risk of hypoglycemia were highlighted in the recent American Diabetes Association and European Association for the Study of Diabetes report into the management of type 2 diabetes in adults. It highlights the evidence
0: for those things extremely well. Thanks for that. As discussed in the webinar the Australian blood glucose treatment algorithm for type 2 diabetes recommends DPP4 inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors or sulfonylureas as the second line agent in management. How do you determine which to use next? It's such an important question Jan and I think this is
1: where patient characteristics come into play. A thorough diabetes self-management assessment, alongside a medical history, always helps to identify factors to help determine the best treatment option for our patients as individuals. For example, in a humid Queensland summer, I would not recommend an SGLT2 inhibitor to someone whose work involves intense physical activity in the outdoors. That person might be better to use a DPP-4, which has a reduced risk of side effects and, and no risk of volume depletion from humidity Conversely, if I have an elderly person with diabetes and a history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, healthy kidneys, and good quality of life, I might think an sglt 2 offers a glucose-lowering profile that has a really good cardiovascular safety profile and a lower risk of hypoglycemia. Finally, for those patients that are on tight budgets, I think the sulfonylureas are really helpful. And combination treatments of any of the things we've talked about are less expensive and highly efficacious. Generally speaking, the sulfs have a high level of efficacy in terms of glucose lowering, but they have fallen out of favor recently with the arrival of oral agents, which do further re- reduce that risk of hyperglycemia. However, choosing the right sulf at the right dose in the right
0: person who has good diabetes self-management habits could work really well. Good point. Thanks, Peter. Um, And finally, there was a non-medication question from a webinar uh, participant. And I'll be interested in your response to this one. Is it possible for someone to have comorbidities of diabetes, like retinopathy or chronic kidney disease, with an A1C no higher than 6.5 per cent? Yeah, absolutely, Jan. I think patients can have a
1: seemingly normal A1C and have diabetes complications, and it relates to the way we interpret the A1C. So we remember that the glycosylation of glucose to haemoglobin relies upon the health of our red blood cells. So if the haemoglobin profile is abnormal, we must consider whether the HbA1c can be relied upon. The mean cell volume or MCV is a useful indicator of the number of red blood cells and is always collected alongside hemoglobin in a full blood count. The other situation is where hypoglycemia is occurring frequently and that will artificially lower the A1C and mask hyperglycemia. These are excellent examples of the value of regular self-monitoring of blood glucose levels and I routinely ask my patients using oral therapy to monitor more often around the time their HbA1c is tested. This way I not only find out if the HbA1c is reliable, but I also get to check for those patterns and aid decision
0: making when developing my diabetes education plan. Thank you very much for your time today, Peter. I think all these questions have come through the medication management webinar series. But before we conclude the conversation, I wonder if you had sort of three take home messages, I guess, for our listeners regarding SGLT2s and DPP4s in general practice, perhaps? Yeah, no worries,
1: Jan. I think firstly, we want to individualize care and choose therapies that suit not only the HbO1c, but also the lifestyle and the other clinical features of the person with diabetes in front of us. Secondly, those DPP4 agents are easy to add as second-line therapies. They provide a really low risk of hypoglycemia alongside a weight-neutral profile. They have very few side effects overall. And thirdly and finally, there has been a lot of concern raised, raised regarding... Sorry, I'll start that point again. Thirdly and finally, there has been a lot of concern raised regarding the use of newer therapies, especially the SGLT2s. The evidence of serious adverse offence remains at an acceptable level, and I think this is because we're better understanding and managing those potential risks. Use with caution, the SGLT2 agents are safe for people with diabetes, and the studies indicate they're beneficial for people with known cardiovascular and kidney disease.
0: Thanks, Peter, once again, for your time today. It really has been great to catch up with you again. Uh, and I'm sure that this webinar and the, and the podcast have inspired our listeners to start thinking more about medication management in the patients that they see. And thank you to you, the members, for taking time to listen to this podcast. If you haven't already done so, please take the time and head to the ADA Learning Management System to watch the recording of the webinar series with Peter. So thank you again, Peter, for your time. And until next time, goodbye, everyone.